Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. Resolute Square. Welcome to the Zero Line, produced by Resolute Square. I'm Sergeant Sarah Ashton Cirillo of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, and every week we'll be bringing you inside Ukraine's war for liberty and liberation against the Russian enemy, while explaining how a victory by us on the battlefield isn't just vital for the Ukrainian people, but for the world as a whole. We will push back against the lies regarding this war for freedom and take you straight to the front lines of the fight for democracy. For those of you who don't know my story, I've been in Ukraine serving in multiple capacities for more than 500 days. And during that time, I've seen what democracy truly means, and I've come to understand what tyranny also means. Joining me today is a very special guest, John Jackson. Welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. For full disclosure, John Jackson is not his legal name. He, too, is a soldier in the armed forces of Ukraine. However, he has played a multitude of roles also in this victory that is ongoing against the Kremlin. So, John Jackson, again, welcome to the Zero Line. When did you arrive in Ukraine? About four months ago. And what drove you to come here? It was a pretty clear uh, call to duty for anybody who believes in democracy is against war crimes and wants to make sure that the victory of the Cold War remains a victory as it falls to our current generation to fight it. While every soldier is important in Ukraine and in this battle for liberty and liberation, John Jackson's extra special. John has a JD from a university in the United States. He has practiced law for quite a few years. 10 years. For 10 years, for a decade. However, the calling for liberty and democracy and freedom and whatever the other adjectives that can be applied to Ukraine's battle against Russian aggression, it created a calling for John to come here. And prior to John becoming a soldier, he did some work for the armed forces of Ukraine, as I mentioned, in a variety of capacities. John, you joined me on Capitol Hill in May. That is correct. And tell us about that experience. You know, actually, it was my first time ever being to Washington, D.C. in either an official capacity or on a, in a personal level. It was very uh, wonderful first to be there, to see the beautiful architecture and to experience our government at work. I was very heartened to see the level of support for Ukraine, that there are a lot of good people working to understand that just whatever their political differences may be, they are unified in the cause of freedom that started with the Declaration of Independence was earned through the Civil War, was echoed by Martin Luther King, and, and falls to us this day. When we were in Washington, D.C., I attended a variety of meetings, and John uh, attended a few with me. One of those groupings was a briefing to the Helsinki Commission, which is a bicameral, bipartisan group of legislators, along with military representatives and the State Department. And this was at the height of questions as to when the counteroffensive would begin. And one thing that came out of the, the visit that we made along with the virtual visit of my commander, Major Ilya Boshko, of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, 
was John preparing a, an in-depth memo on depicums, which are also known more generally as cluster munitions. John, speak to us a little bit about depicums and about where your view is of it from legal perspective, being that you have a JD, as well as from the point of view of this battle for liberty and liberation. Sure, there's a couple of quick things to touch on. Let's be clear, Russia has been using its own cluster munitions, which have a failure rate of 25 to 30% plus against civilians. Uh, just Google the Kramatorsk train station attack and you will see Russia using cluster munitions against unarmed civilians in the middle of the day. If you also look, they've used them in Kharkiv, this throughout this entire war. Any statement by Russia that they haven't used them or they may start to use them, it's just an absolute lie. And then let's also look at uh, what are depictums. Cluster munitions, meaning it's an artillery shell fired out of 155 millimeter M777 howitzers, M109s, and NATO standard artillery pieces. I'm going to interject really yeah. fast. Thank you to the United States for all of your support when it comes to sending over uh, some of these weapons and, and uh, armaments that we can actually utilize to fire the depictums. We appreciate all the support coming from Capitol Hill and the White House. Absolutely. Uh, they've given us modern artillery that's just more accurate and outclasses the uh, Russian invaders uh, completely. And so we are very thankful for that. It is a bunch of little bombs within a bigger bomb is the way to think about it. There are 24 plus, I believe, 42 individual bomblets or, or grenades. They can destroy thin-skinned armored vehicles, but also they have an anti-personnel effect. What you have to understand is that the Russians, since World War II, have had a defensive strategy of creating multiple trench lines, huge minefields. So the yeah. people who are listening can understand it's not just in one area. The Russians have created what I call these uh, triple trench lines because you have dragon's teeth, you have the minefields, and then you have the actual uh, trenches. And then behind them, you also have additional dragon's teeth. So ultimately, this is running for about 11 to 1300 kilometers along the front line. They have been spending the last 500 plus days digging these trench lines out. Please continue and thank you for bringing that up because people need to realize the Russians are very well dug in and we are needing to utilize every weapon possible to dislodge them. Yes, and the purpose, and you have anti-tank ditches, you have what they've created an array, as is, is, uh, was mentioned, 1,100 or 1, 1,100 kilometers long, very, very deep. There's two ways that's going to get cleared. One is individual Ukrainian soldiers storming trenches, running through minefields. You can imagine how dangerous and, and high casualty that is. Or you can use the Depikum's cluster munitions uh, to clear out those trench lines. It really comes down to a moral question of how many, why should Ukrainian soldiers die to dislodge people from their own lands who are part of a genocidal invasion. With respect to these uh, depictums, the failure rate is between 1% and 2.5%. These I'm going to interject. Yeah. One of the arguments about the Russian cluster munitions and groups that are anti-democracy, such as Code Pink, brings up are that they have high failure rates of 25 to 30%. However, you just quoted depictums as having a failure rate no higher than 2.5%. Explain where there were th this discrepancy would come from. Well, codes, uh, people like Code Pink, again, also Human Rights Watch, and uh, Human Rights in quotes, because it's they don't say anything when Russia does violate human rights, but they say it all about Ukraine when they don't violate human rights. They're just wrong, and they have either bad facts or they're willfully lying uh, to the people of the world. Is it possible that some of this leadership, and I'm going to jump back to the Depickums in a second, but it brings up the question, are some of these folks potentially categorized? I mean, again, you have an international law background. You literally have this as your profession. Could they be qualifying as foreign agents, potentially unregistered foreign agents of the Russian government? 
No, absolutely. I am convinced that if we knew everything that the Kremlin or their agents did in communicating with people of this type, it would really be shocking to most people, but not surprising to myself. You just have to look at the cluster munitions debate. Ukraine is using them defensively because someone invaded them. Okay. They're not using them as an invader as, you know, on someone else's land. And look at how many people who have never said anything about the, the things Russia does every single day that are war crimes. And all of a sudden, when Ukraine properly uses it on their own land, how many people, you know, have their hair on fire in, on behalf of the Kremlin? That's absolute proof right there. Getting back to the technical specs of the Depickums, the 2.5% failure rate means what in real-world warfare? Well, these are, you understand, these are going to be fired into areas that have tons of landmines, millions, I mean millions of landmines already in place by the Russians. It means that there will be out of, let's say, if there was 100 submunitions, there's actually 72, but if, uh, hypothetically, if there was 100 submunitions in each shell, two might not explode when intended to, and it would just add an infinitesimal amount of unexploded ordnance into areas that already have it, but it would put that ordnance with 98% of it working into trenches, saving thousands of Ukrainian lives, thousands of children from becoming orphans, and thousands of Ukrainian war, war wives from becoming widows for a country that has already suffered so much. Let's discuss another aspect of this and the debate that popped up. One of the statements was made that they are being fired into areas with civilians. I want to specifically clarify that Russia has been attacking the civilian populations of Ukraine for more than 500 days. They've been doing it for nine plus years during the breakout of the separatist war, the Russian-backed separatist war in Ukraine starting in 2014. And remember, you were on the phone with me when I was helping to rescue people in Kyrgyzstan as a first responder, and you heard an artillery shell, a 152 millimeter, landing nearby. We're going to get to that in just a moment okay. because I do want to, this is the zero line and you have been at the zero line and it's something to discuss. I do want to stay focused on the Depickums for just a moment. So the argument being, hey, Russia is attacking civilian areas, but I want the audience to understand Ukraine does not attack civilian areas. Ukraine attacks Russian soldiers and Russian mercenaries. Explain to us from the legal perspective, I'd like you to answer two questions. One, are Depickums illegal in Ukraine? Are they illegal in the United States? And ultimately, talk to us about the law when it comes to attacking civilians versus when it comes to attacking soldiers during battle. So there was a convention on cluster munitions. This is not a law. This is a voluntary agreement uh, entered into by countries. If you look at who signed it, are the types of countries that will never be involved in a major land war. Most of, or many of the NATO countries did not sign it. China did not sign it. Russia, Ukraine, uh, I believe South Korea hasn't because they can't because they have North Korea breathing down their, uh, their neck, uh, you know, it can invade at any moment. So the, the large militaries of the world who are under large threat or could face threats to their territorial integrity, I'm not talking about Russia and China, mainly we're talking about Ukraine, Israel, areas like that, have not signed it. So, uh, and that includes the United States. Correct. The United Most importantly, so they did not ship us any illegal weapons, is what you're saying. No illegal weapons. So the United States, Ukraine, Russia, none of them signed this Convention on Cluster Munitions, which again is a voluntary agreement. It's not it doesn't have the force of law. So therefore, there's nothing illegal about these. Uh, they do not kill people in any in painful way more than you know regular artillery does. Getting hit with a regular artillery shell or a a, a Depickum shell, it, it's it's equally brutal, just like all war is. And that's why we wish Russia had not brought it to Ukraine's doorstep. 
shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. So now that we know that the controversy of Depickums was Russian-created chaos, Russian-created propaganda, Russian-created lies, let's move to what's happening on the battlefield, your experiences, and then I want to look at the bigger global picture, because here at Resolute Squares, the um, zero line, <laughs> sorry about that, I was going to say the front line, but we go past the front line to the zero line, we discuss big picture issues as well when it comes to democracy and the fight of good versus evil. Discussing the zero line, discussing the battles taking place right now, give us a quick synopsis within operational security of what's taking place on the front during the counteroffensive. So Ukraine has a large number of foreign trained troops, armor, and combined arms effects and abilities. Those are sitting in reserve right now, and we are currently in the process of clearing minefields, taking back strategic locations uh, you know, where it's beneficial to do so, doing a, what's called reconnaissance and force and shaping operations. Time is on Ukraine's side. Time is not on Russia's side. And so we ask people to understand that because Ukraine does not have um, complete control of the skies, and remember, the United States has done no land warfare without complete control of the skies since, I believe, World War II, maybe even earlier than that, because we generally had air superiority there, except in Western Europe before the P-51 Mustang came out. So we're, we're making steady progress. It's, a, it's going according to plan. And uh, we are depleting uh, the uh, Russian artillery and uh, adjusting every single day uh, to move forward. I want to tell the audience just to give perspective to when you said uh, about foreign trained troops, Joint Chiefs of Staff General Mark Milley stated in a meeting with Defense Minister Alexei Reznikov of Ukraine that 17 brigades have been trained in outside countries in preparation of the counteroffensive. Totaling 63,000 troops have been trained by NATO countries, as well as 15,000 in the United States alone, and that number is continuously going up. So those who are saying that the United States hasn't done enough, those who are questioning what's going on, again, it's about time, and it's not about fighting a war with what the public wants. It's about fighting a war in a way that will allow us to achieve the complete liberation and a return to the 1991 borders for Ukraine. Continuing on, you mentioned reconnaissance. You mentioned some of these underlying areas that uh, don't always show up in the headlines. What are you doing here? Can we talk about that? Okay, so I have joined the uh, Armed Forces of Ukraine. I went through the normal background and health checks that every soldier does. I took an oath to the government of Ukraine and to comply with international law and to comply with the Geneva Convention. That's actually written in my oath. So just to confirm, as I am, I'm an active duty non-commissioned officer with the Armed Forces of Ukraine. You're a soldier with the Armed Forces of Ukraine. There is no question as to our legal status. We are soldiers fighting legally in a war that would not fall under any question that we're protected by the Geneva Convention. That's absolutely correct. We do combat in uniforms and we take pride in complying with international law. The only country utilizing mercenaries in this war of Russian aggression is Russia. 
And it's not just the Wagner Group. They're bringing mercenaries in from Cuba and elsewhere, fighting on their behalf as private military contractors. We do not allow private military contractors in Ukraine. It's against the law. And all foreign soldiers, the couple of thousand or so that are fighting here, are actual members of the armed forces of Ukraine. That is correct. And I've been all over this country, and I can tell you that with 110% certainty, that is all I've experienced with everyone fighting here. They may be from different countries, but they all went through the extensive background check, extensive medical check, and they swore an oath of allegiance to both Ukraine and international law and the principles of freedom. I want to jump down to a point where you were in Kherson, right after the Kakhovka Dam was blown up. You were one of the first people down there with a couple of members of your unit, as well as some civilians. A lot of civilians were there at the time. You were standing in an area that was 98% civilian, would you say? Uh, at least. At least. So again, to break it down into numbers, there was probably a couple of hundred people in the area with less than five being military. And I was on the phone with John Jackson when a shell came in. Walk us through that. So we were down uh, initially at the boat launch. We had to, you know, this is, uh, there were nothing but some first responders there. When I say first responders, I'm not, I don't mean military. I mean like ambulances, guys in, you know, red Sherpa vehicles that are, this is like FEMA essentially, and firefighters, things like that. So the first responder term is you would think of the United States, almost maybe a handful of soldiers launching boats, recovering people, bringing back mainly elderly people who were crying with their pets, who were on stretchers. And knowing Russia, I said to myself, we've been here down with, and there's people crowded around to help because there's a lot of elderly people and it was hard to you know, get them in and out of rescue vehicles. Let's move back a few blocks because I know Russia likes to attack first responders and lo and behold, they did. 152 millimeter howitzer shell with an effective kill radius of between, can be anywhere up to 100, 150 meters, wounding radius, 200 meters, 250 meters. It came in, it luckily hit a steeple or a, a ceiling of a higher building. Otherwise it would have, probably would have killed me. And it, the entire sky was red, had to dive into an alley, jump on the person next to me to protect them. And then there was a, an artillery barrage after that. So absolutely attacking with lethal indirect fire weapons uh, crowds. I want to bring up a statistic that came out from the United Nations High Commission on Refugees this week. Thousands and thousands of Ukrainian civilians have been killed at the hands of Russian terrorism and war crimes in the last 500 plus days. But even a more chilling number is more than 500 children have been killed due to Russian atrocities since the outbreak of full-scale war by Russia against Ukraine, and more than a thousand have suffered grievous injuries. So again, this is not just anecdotal. The United Nations came out with the numbers, and we are talking about thousands of civilians having been killed through Russian terrorism, war crimes, and other depraved acts, as well as more than 500 children. When you left Kherson, what impression did you take back of the Ukrainian people and also of Russian terrorism? Because while you had viewed Russian terrorism and war crimes from more general attacks such as Shahids coming in, the Iranian-made drones, and, and different shelling. This is the first time that you saw an attack on civilians close up. Explain to us your emotions in that moment. 
Well, you know, it makes you ex extremely angry and it makes you wonder, you know, just because something bad happens in a war crime happens and you don't hear about it, or you don't see about it, say in the States or in Western Europe, you may not be happening in front of you, but it's real. And it's every single day. Russia is as bad as ISIS or Al Qaeda. And they're, they are all terrorists. Like, so for Russia, it has a lot more soldiers and thousands more artillery pieces and weapons. They behead people. They castrate people. If you were to go to the mall this weekend, imagine a weapon dropping into that mall in the food court. That's exactly what Russia attempts to do every single day. It's sheer luck that more people don't die. Every single day. Every, every single day, no matter where you are in the country. I tell people, if you come into Ukraine and you go to Kiev or anywhere far east of that, it's only a matter of time, a period of weeks, before you become a technical victim of a war crime of some kind where you're a civilian who's shot at. When I first got here, it took me about a week. I was Kramatorsk and I grabbed, grabbed rockets, which... Again, can kill everybody in, in an apartment building, landed very close by. It was literally just to terrorize people. They have no, they weren't aiming at military targets. They didn't shoot enough to have any military effect. It was just to remind people, we're here. We're going to kill as many of you as possible. Pure good versus evil. Let's move from your personal perspective, your personal experience and your personal understanding to a more broader picture. We were on Capitol Hill. My commander called in, addressed members of the Helsinki committee, gave a briefing. As you know, I went in and met with different elected officials. You came in and met some uh, staffers as well. What was the sense of the United States' support for Ukraine as of May? and contrast it to the NATO summit that recently concluded in Vilnius, do you see the United States as a consistent and forward-looking partner for us here in Ukraine in order to carry out victory? You know, I'm obviously biased, uh, but I, if we think about the level of support that has been provided to Ukraine, you think about, especially even maybe even more importantly, Ukraine's ability to turn that into battlefield success to master the most advanced weapons in the world, like the Patriot system, shooting down hypersonic missiles with a Patriot uh, battery, I, th that answered any question it was about Ukraine's ability to use advanced weapons. And uh, they've been a reliable and consistent partner throughout. I think that, uh, you know, they want to be careful and to make sure that we are getting the weapons that we need. I, I am very proud of my country, and uh, I know the support will continue under the Biden administration. I think I can speak for both John Jackson and myself when we are very, very proud to come from the greatest country in the world, the United States, to have learned the values of the greatest country in the world, the United States. And I often state that the war here is equivalent to what was taking place in 1775, and that in fact, Ukrainians are the true inheritors of this dream of the founding fathers and those who fought back against the tyranny of the British Empire and what it meant to have individual freedom. I like to say that we're not fighting for tolerance here. We're not fighting for acceptance in any manner. We are simply fighting for liberty and freedom. And that comes about with the complete liberation of Ukraine and a return to the 1991 borders. You just spoke of the US's support under the Biden administration. Obviously, we know there's tremendous bipartisan support across Congress. Republicans and Democrats, in my experiences and speaking with them, have shown overwhelming, overwhelming understanding of our needs 
and the fact that for global security, we must achieve this victory. It can't be a half-hearted effort. And so again, let's talk about time. While we all want victory to come tomorrow, victory will be achieved. Is that a fair statement? Yes, it is a fair statement. It absolutely will be achieved. Going ahead to your, again, international perspective, the coalition that coalesced around Ukraine has been one of the largest and broadest over the course of modern warfare. I would say dating back to at least 1991 with Iraq's invasion of Kuwait, and before that, going back to World War II. Ultimately, the United Nations has shown broad support, the countries within the UN, but the Security Council has shown itself to be fleckless and ineffective, especially due to the, or specifically, not especially, but specifically due to Russia's veto power. Talk to us a little bit about working around the UN and achieving our goals and what this means for the UN's reputation. Yeah, the center of gravity in Europe is the NATO alliance. NATO has been successful for over 70 years and I think is really the true inheritor of the rules-based order, the true enforcer of the rules-based order that arose after in the ashes of, you know, 70, 80 million dead in World War II and all the victories that were fought in the rebuilding and from, you know, Poland and, and, and West Germany and all across Europe, both in terms of rebuilding cities, but rebuilding freedom. You look at the United Nations, it's defective. The Security Council can accomplish nothing except for to grind things to a halt. The UN, I, I do not think, is, is something that is really taken seriously. I'm sure that I know there's lots of good people there who care about human rights and care about Ukraine. I understand that. But structurally, the way that the UN was built, it makes it an organization that can accomplish very little. Are you okay having just called NATO the gravitational center of power in Europe? Are you okay with the outcome in the sense that Ukraine was promised membership? It was stated that it will receive membership. However, there's nothing concrete until after victory takes place. There is the creation, though, of the Ukraine-NATO Working Alliance. Was the outcome successful? Yes, I believe the outcome was successful. I think everyone understands President Zelensky is, uh, has seen all kinds of crimes. You know, He loves his people. He's a good man. And the fact that he uh, speaks from the heart and wanted maybe to, for things to move forward a, a little more at the summit is, is, does not undercut whatsoever the fact that there were concrete promises made. There is a concrete path forward. And I think we have to understand that you know, these are countries that have supported Ukraine and have shown through their actions that they support Ukraine. Ukraine will be a part of NATO. There is just a lot of unknown contingencies that could affect that NATO membership. And uh, I believe it was the right way to move forward the way that NATO did, and it was done so in a very diplomatic and specific fashion to avoid giving any uh, support to uh, Russian propaganda that would have tried to have used an immediate transfer of Ukraine to NATO as somehow bolstering their narratives. It was done exactly right, and Ukraine will be a member of NATO, and it will be a global superpower. We'd like to back up statements with facts here at The Zero Line. And one of the reasons for that is it's easy to undercut democracy, as you just suggested, by Russian lies. Part of the proof of the success of the NATO summit for Ukraine was the announcement at the end of the summit of an additional $1.5 billion in aid from just our Ukraine, sorry, excuse me, just our European partners 
And then the United States announced last night, sorry, last night or the night before, $1.3 billion in additional aid. We are grateful for all of our supporters across the globe who are carrying out our vision of victory, because ultimately this is a victory that will be achieved by Ukrainians on behalf of people who care about freedom and democracy across the globe. Speaking of across the globe, let's jump down to the global south. There had been some questions about the global south's support of Ukraine. Since that time, we've seen President Zelensky entertain the president of South Africa, as well as a few other African nations. We've seen him hold press conferences with press corps from the global south. And we've just received word that Vladimir Putin, the dictator of Russia, is choosing not to attend the much ballyhooed BRICS summit next month that would be taking place in South Africa due to an outstanding arrest warrant against him from the International Criminal Court for kidnapping Ukrainian children. There was some discussion that Russia would declare war or go to war with South Africa if they arrested Putin as they had to under the Rome Convention, and therefore, in a very cowardly fashion, he chose to stay home. Give us some thoughts about the global South and Putin's cowardice. You know, we saw both with respect to uh, the BRIC summit, also with Prigozhin's march towards Moscow, how Medvedev, who's always seemingly intoxicated and making threats, and Putin. So that's the former, just so the audience knows, Medvedev is the former president of, he was the, what I would call the caretaker president from 2008 to 2012 of the Russian Federation, handpicked by Putin. And he now holds a very high position within what would we would know as a security council in Russia. And again, Putin rules everything. So even former presidents are controlled by Putin. Yeah, that is correct. And he's often getting on social media, being a, a bomb thrower, for lack of a better term, claiming that, you know, Russia has nuclear weapons and making these th threats, which uh, they're not going to follow through on. Both him and Putin fled when they thought Prigozhin was coming. They showed that they're cowards. And then with the BRICS summit, Putin is not going to show up. Listen, think about Osama bin Laden. He said that he was committed. Putin says he's committed to Russia. Did Osama bin Laden ever carry out a suicide bombing? Did he ever go fight and, and, and die? No, he didn't. And Putin is a coward and probably even a greater coward amongst those two terrible people. With respect to the global south, it is important to understand that Ukraine is the breadbasket of Europe. And it is important to develop those relations with those countries that are in uh, the global south. He's doing that. He's being responsible. And they saw firsthand for themselves what Russian terrorism come, looks like when they came to Kiev and there was an air raid attack, or sorry, air raid sirens because of an attack on civilians while and when they showed up in Kiev. Uh, they fully understand that. And uh, it's important that we continue, continue to cultivate those connections with the uh, other growing nations of the world. John Jackson, you have been nothing if not opinionated during this episode of The Zero Line from Resolute Square. What's next for you? Well, I am in an offensive infantry unit, and we will soon be out east and taking the fight to the Russians, and I look forward to it, and I have no fear. Uh, I have nothing but love, and I will be listening to Martin Luther King's speech ring in my ears in combat. That's what's up for me. John Jackson from Resolute Square's The Zero Line to The Zero Line for Freedom 
in the east of Ukraine. Thank you for joining us today, John. Thank you for having me. This is Sergeant Sarah Ashton Cirillo with the Armed Forces of Ukraine coming to you from the Zero Line. Thank you very much for your support, and we appreciate the fight for democracy, liberty, and liberation from all of our partners around the world. Slava Ukraini, and may God bless our troops. Thank you for listening to The Zero Line, a podcast brought to you by Resolute Square. Resolute Square's mission is to inform, lead, and connect. And The Zero Line is one of the tools that followers of Resolute Square can use to fight back against tyranny while championing democracy. Please like and subscribe to The Zero Line wherever you podcast and follow us on Twitter at Resolute Square or visit ResoluteSquare.com. Thanks once more for hanging out at The Zero Line.